would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to two different passages, both in the New Testament. The first one is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's on page 987 in the red Bibles and the chairs around you. Then you can also open up to 1 Corinthians 15 on page 962 and put your finger there. I'm going to read both of these passages. First, first, first I will read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And then we'll read together 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50, down through the end of the chapter. So first of all, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. This is Paul speaking to the Christians in Thessalonica. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive... And who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50. Again, Paul, but writing to a different church, this time to the church in Corinth, says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the the perishable puts on the, the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, even in these very moments, that you would fill us with all hope. That you would fill us with a hope that the world cannot offer us. A hope that is transcendent. A hope that is greater, not only than ourselves, but than in anything we experience. Would you do this for your glory and for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can see we're not starting Revelation today. Uh, The plan was to start Revelation today, our new series. That will begin next Sunday, Lord willing. 
Uh, as I was uh, beginning early this week to start uh, our series on Revelation, uh, beginning to think about Revelation uh, a little bit more, uh, then we had uh, Kay Singbush's funeral on Tuesday, and so as I was preparing for the funeral, I was reminded of two particular things. The first is that there is a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of confusion, even by Christians, about what happens when we die. And secondly, that we are surrounded by death. In our creation, uh, with the death of family and friends, loved ones, and even as we have an understanding of our own mortality and know that we too one day will face death. And with those two thoughts in my mind, I also realized that those are not new thoughts. The confusion and the fact that we are surrounded by death, it's something that God's people have always been wrestling with, so much so that Paul even addressed it in his letters to churches in the first century. So I wanted us to take just a, a little bit of time today, delay our start of Revelation a week, and to consider what happens when we die. So today we're going to be looking at what Paul says here in these two passages. There's actually not a lot in the Bible that tells us a lot of details about what happens after we die. But these two passages have some of the most specific details, gives us bits and parts. And so what we're going to see today is, particularly as we look at Thessalonians, uh, the reason why Paul was writing to them to tell them about what happens when they die, the, the, the basis for the hope that he wants them to have, the description that he gives them of what takes place when we die, and then the difference that it makes for us. So let's first look and see what Paul is telling them about the reason for why he wrote to them, the, 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 excuse me, the Thessalonians. Uh, look at verse 13. He, he begins by telling them is exactly why he's writing to them. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, as that phrase means brothers and sisters. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as, as others do who have no hope. Paul wants God's people to be informed. That's what he says. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. We don't want you to have a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding about these things. And about what in particular does he say? About those who are asleep in the Lord. That phrase, being asleep, was a term that was used a lot in the ancient cultures to refer to death. The pagan cultures used it a lot to soften the idea of death, because in the pagan cultures there really was no hope in death. But even the Christian culture, the ancient Christian cultures used that term of falling asleep. We see the term used a number of times in the scriptures, and they would use it as an expression of hope, as if we would go to sleep in death and wake up in paradise, so to speak. Paul's saying, we do not want you to have anxiety, to be fearful. We want you to be informed, brothers and sisters. And, and not just that, but he wants them to, to be people who would not grieve without hope. That's what he says at the end of verse 13. He wanted the Thessalonians to be different than the non-Christians around them. Those who would see no hope in death. That death was simply the end of the road. Paul tells them, we want you to be different. And, and notice, he doesn't tell them that they shouldn't grieve. 
He doesn't say you should not grieve. He says we don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. It's appropriate. It is right. It is good to grieve in the face of death. It is Paul reminding them of that fact. Grieving, sadness is appropriate because death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is the result of the fall, of the sin of Adam and Eve that has impacted all of us, of the brokenness of this world. But Paul is saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, yes, grieve in the face of the reality of death that is in this world, but do not grieve as those who have no hope. Why? Well, he goes on in verse 14 to tell them the basis for their hope. And where does he begin in verse 14? Where does he go? He points to Jesus first and foremost. Specifically, he addresses Jesus' death and resurrection from the grave. Paul is telling them that the basis of their hope is Jesus' death and resurrection. That his death and resurrection secure and guarantee a hopeful future for all of God's people. Look at what he says. It's those familiar little words that remind us of such a rich, deep doctrine. He says it's through Jesus. He's talking about our union with Christ. He's talking about the fact that by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are united, we are connected to Jesus, so that we get what He has accomplished. As Jesus died a sacrificial death and went into the tomb and then was raised again, we too now have our sins paid for and we too have the hope of resurrected bodies. Those who are united to Jesus in life will be with Him as they die. Even death cannot separate us from Jesus Even when we take our final breath, we know we will be with Him. That's what Paul is saying is the basis of their hope. Those who are united to Jesus in life will be with Him in their death. Brothers and sisters, do you have a sense of how good that good news is? The euangelion, the gospel, the Greek word euangelion literally means good news. And this is the good news. That the basis of your hope, if you are in Christ this morning, is not your faithful obedience. It's not your record of righteousness. It is not your worldly success. It is finally and completely and solely the death and the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the basis of our hope in life and in death. It is good news that Paul is telling the Thessalonians and us this morning. He also gives them a description of what will happen. That's in verses 15 through 17. Now, we know historically that what must have been going on in the lives of the Thessalonians is that they were worried that... There were Christian friends and brothers and sisters in Christ and family members in their community who had died. And the Thessalonians, because they didn't have a lot of knowledge and understanding of what happens when you die, began to get worried that somehow those Christians who had already died would miss out when Jesus came back. 
And so Paul is writing to them to confirm and to encourage them. All those in Christ will be present and will participate in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. All who are in Christ, whether they have died already or whether they are alive on the day that he arrives, will have the blessings of his return. Notice as Paul is giving them these words at the beginning of verse 15, he reminds them that what he's teaching them is not just something he's made up in his own head. Where did he get it? What does he say in verse 15? He got it from the Lord himself. We don't know exactly what Paul's referring to. Uh, nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus give this specific teaching himself specifically. So it's likely that Paul is drawing on something that Jesus said but was not written down. But it's still authoritative because it comes from Jesus himself. And he's saying you can bank on this being truth because it comes from our Savior. Your hope is in Him. And what does He tell them? Verse 16. Jesus will arrive. It'll be a literal arrival. It'll be personal. Jesus Himself is going to arrive. Not some angel. Not some other uh, created being. But Jesus in the person will arrive. And it will be bodily. It'll be His body and flesh and blood that will arrive. And it will be public and visible. This is not something that is going to be hidden or only seen by a few. This is something that is going to be global and public. And notice Paul also says it's going to be loud. You see those phrases there in verse 16. We don't know if these phrases of a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. We don't know if they're referring to one specific sound or if they're three separate sounds. But what he is saying here is so clear. It is a cry of command. The phrasing that Paul is using here means an authoritative call. It is an official declaration. It was a word that was used to refer to how shipmasters would speak to the rowers of their boats. How military officials would speak to their soldiers. How chariot drivers would speak to their horses. What Paul is saying here is that when Jesus comes, there will be a loud cry, an authoritative command in the midst of all of the excitement there will be the voice of an archangel adding his voice to this loud command and the sound of the trumpet of God. That phrase, the trumpet of God, is often used in scriptures for the announcement of the arrival of some majestic royalty. What Paul is saying here is that not only will Jesus arrive literally, he, it will be a loud arrival. It will be a clear, authoritative announcement and call by our Savior. And notice what he tells us. That when he comes. Who will be with him? At the end of verse 14. We read that the souls of those. Who have been with him. Will come with him at his second coming. God will bring with Jesus. Those who have fallen asleep. Those who have died. So here Paul is telling us. What's going to happen when we die. The soul and the body are separated. And in that moment of our last breath, if we are in Christ, at that very moment, we go, as he says here, we fall asleep in the Lord, so to speak, and we are at that very moment with Jesus in the presence of our Savior. It's not the final heaven. Some have referred to it as an intermediate state, but it is a place where there is no sin. 
It's a place where there is there is no brokenness. There are no tears there. there there's no death. It is a place where we wait with joy and with ultimate peace for the final heaven to be revealed when we come with our Savior in His second coming. There are both some, some good aspects and some negative aspects of this. I want you to reflect on this just for a second. The good aspects are obvious. The moment we die, our souls are with Christ immediately. We are in His presence No sin, no pain, no disease, no depression, no death. A place of peace and happiness and joy as we wait for His coming back again and the establishing of the final earth and heaven. But there's there's also a sense in which we should appreciate that there's a negative aspect to this. There's nothing negative about being with Jesus. That place will be so much better than what we experience here. But the fact of our death and the separation of our body and soul is a negative thing because it comes as a result of the fall where our bodies and our souls are separated. That's not how it was intended, but the sin of Adam and Eve and the brokenness of the fall has caused this to be the way that it must happen until Jesus returns. So Paul is saying that when Jesus arrives, the souls of Christians who have died will come with him. And then notice what he says again in verse 16. The bodies of those souls will be resurrected and changed. And those who are still alive, bodies will be changed as well. At the end of verse 16, he says the dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus' command, that, that command, that call of a command that we just read about, will cause there to be bodies in the grave to be resurrected and changed. We're not given a lot of detail of what that looks like or exactly how that's going to happen. We don't get a lot of description in the Bible about the nature of our resurrected bodies, what that's going to be like. One of the only places that we get kind of an analogy or an illustration is in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks about it this way, that our lives in this life are like a seed. And when we die, just like the seed, we go into the ground. And like a seed, it decomposes. It dies in a sense. But then what comes as a result of that? A flower or a plant. Life. Don't understand all that that means, but Paul uses that as some kind of an illustration of what happens as as we die and as these bodies decompose. When Christ returns and we have resurrected bodies, it is as if this plant, this flower with beauty and life begins to flourish. Paul says that it's going to happen fast. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Those who have died first, and then all those who are with Christ and in Christ will be caught together up into the heavens, given resurrected bodies, imperishable bodies, immortal bodies, no longer affected by the fall and by sin and brokenness, perfect bodies. And I know that some have worried about what happens to those whose bodies have been harmed in this life in some way or another, or maybe even destroyed, or for those who choose to be cremated. And here's what we have to remember. Who's doing the resurrection? It's not me. It's not you. It's Almighty God. And He can cause those bodies to come together however He desires and wishes. Whether our bodies have been in the grave for two hours 
or two years or 2,000 years. At the call of our Savior Jesus Christ, the bodies will rise again. Imperishable. Immortal. One other thing that he mentions here is in verse 17. Once that takes place, then we who are alive, who are left, whose bodies will also be changed, he says in 1 Corinthians, will be caught up together with those who have come with Christ, who have already died and now who have resurrected bodies. We will all be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. A couple of things I want to point out for this passage, this verse. He says that we'll be caught up together. The Greek there means to be seized. To be taken by sudden force. It's where, where the word rapture comes from. Rapture is a Latin, is a Latin derivative from this word seized. And, and there's this sense in which it will not be something that's, that, that we're not aware of as happening. It's something that will be dramatic. It's something that will be un, uh, uh, completely understandable in terms of what is happening. We will be seized and taken up and caught up with all who are in Christ and, and notice what he says is that we will be caught up in the clouds, in the air. Now, a lot of us have grown up with a teaching that, that makes us think that what's going to happen is we're going to go up into the clouds and then that's where heaven is. And that heaven is some kind of disembodied, ethereal, floating around in the clouds. That's not the case that we get in other places in the scripture, but I don't even think that's what Paul is trying to tell us here. Because that phrase that he uses of being in the clouds or in the air is used throughout scripture to refer to being in the presence of God. Uh, Think about even in the temple as the cloud would descend into the temple. The presence of God would be with the people. I think what Paul's saying here is that we will be seized, caught up together into the presence of God. Of God. We will be with Him. We will know Him, and He will know us. And then lastly, notice here that He also says that we will meet the Lord together. And I just want to point out, it's hard to understand it here from the English. When we think about meeting the Lord, we're thinking like we're going to be seized, caught up into his presence and there meet him. And there's a sense in which that, what's Paul, that is what is Paul saying. But Paul's using a very specific word here, a very specific term. It was a term that was used in ancient culture to talk about when a king of a city would go out to battle. He would leave the people of the city and he would go to battle. And as he was victorious, the king would return to his city and the people of the city would go out of the city to the king to welcome him and to be with him and to participate with him in the parade of victory back into the city. That's the word that Paul's using here. You see how beautiful this is that we, all of God's people, as we have resurrected bodies, we will go to meet the Lord as God's people. We will go out and we will welcome him in his victory and we will be part with him in the victory parade and celebration as he leads us into the new heavens and the new earth. And notice what he says at the end of verse 17. We will always be with the Lord. Nothing. Nothing, nothing will ever separate us from the presence of our Savior. So as we finish this morning, what are some things that we should leave with? Four things here for you. First of all, 
We ought to be encouraged. And that was really the reason why Paul was writing these things to begin with. He wanted them to be encouraged. He wanted them to be informed. He wanted them to have hope. He wanted them to be people who would grieve in the face of death, as was appropriate, but not to do so without hope. What he is giving them here in this teaching is a truth that is meant to fill us with hope. Yes, we are surrounded by death in this life. Yes, there is reason for us to grieve. But we are not to grieve as people who have no hope. It's natural for this idea of death to make us somewhat anxious and somewhat fearful. There's an unknown, even as we read the instructions of Paul. But what he is telling us is that if you're in Christ this morning, the hope and the joy and the peace that you have because of what is true of you in Christ should supersede and overcome our anxiety and fear. The, the great pastor and uh, teacher... In the early 20th century, early to mid-20th century, Donald Barnhouse, who was uh, the pastor at 10th PCA in Philadelphia for a number of years, uh, he tells a very well-known story. Perhaps some of you are familiar with it. Uh, When he was younger, uh, his first wife died of cancer. And uh, he tells the story, and his kids tell the story. They, They had three little kids all under the age of 12. And you can only imagine how that would be devastating in the family, and it was. And, and Dr. Barnhouse told the story about how they were driving to the funeral together as a family. And you can imagine the kids are wrestling, trying to figure out what all this means and what it means going forward. And at one point, as they were on the way to the funeral, they pulled up to a stop light, stop sign, and next to them was a big truck, and it was a sunny day. And as they pulled up to the truck, the truck blocked out the sun so that there was a shadow on the car. Dr. Barnhouse saw an opportunity. So he turned around and he looked at his three little kids and he asked them, would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow? And the 12-year-old little girl said, well, the shadow. And Dr. Barnhouse said, Jesus was hit by the truck so that we only have to deal with the shadow of death. You see, if you're in Christ this morning, Jesus Christ himself went to the cross and he took on the full weight of sin and death and destruction. He took it upon himself and he went to the cross and it was nailed to the cross. And as he died and went into the grave and then rose again from the grave, he conquered that sin once and for all. And he conquered death once and for all so that we who are in Christ never have to be hit by the truck of our sin. The justice of God. Yes, we have to deal with the shadow of death in this life. But we do so as people with incredible hope and we are to be filled with encouragement knowing that in the midst of having to deal with the shadow of death in this life, there is a hope of what is to come. And it is a real hope. It is a true hope. Be encouraged, Paul says. I'm going to give you just a quick 
tangent application. I try not to do this too often. I can't say that this directly comes from the passage, but it's something I've been thinking about. It's somewhat connected. I was also reminded of it this past week as we were dealing with Kay's funeral. I want to encourage you, if you're in Christ this morning, to think about your own funeral. Now, you won't be there. But what do you want the people that are there to be thinking about? Based on what Paul is saying here. And I'm going to go a step further. I want you to actually not only think about it, I want you to plan it out. And then I want you to share that with your pastor. Some of you know that Kay did that. And not only does it make it easier for the pastor, but it also gives you an opportunity of actually being thoughtful, of having this in your mind, that you are mortal. That there is coming a day when you will have to deal with your own mortality, your own death. But you should do so as a person of great hope if you're in Christ. Second thing. Not only should we be encouraged, we should be encouraging one another. That's how Paul ends this passage, right in verse 18. Therefore, he says, therefore, because of everything I'm writing to you, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul knew that it wasn't enough for us simply to take take these things in and encourage ourselves. We need one another. We need one another to encourage each other. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that these things could actually be true. And we need to come alongside of our brothers and sisters in Christ and hold them up in those moments when it is hard for them to believe that these things are true. And I know that so many of you did that with Kay in her final days, her final weeks. I have examples that I've been given of people going and and reading the Psalms to her and pointing her back again and again and again and again to the truths. Now, she wasn't doubting them. But how much encouragement it was to her in those final moments as she was sensing more and more drawing closer and closer into the presence of God. You were telling her what is true. That's what we're supposed to do as God's people. Third, we need to be ready. I didn't read it, but if you go on in chapter five of Thessalonians, Paul goes on in the same theme and he talks about the fact that nobody knows the day or the hour of when we are going to be called into the presence of God. It's going to come, that time is going to come like a, a, a thief in the night, he says. People will be focused on getting peace and security in this life. And Jesus will return. Or he'll call you to be with him in his presence. And Paul is saying to all believers in Christ... That we shouldn't be so focused on getting peace and security in this life that we're not focused on the life to come. That we should be ready, that we should be expectant. It doesn't matter if Jesus is coming is in two hours or two days or two years or two hundred years. We should live every moment with that reality in the forefront of our minds. It's especially true and poignant if you're here this morning and you've never made a profession of faith in Christ. Or you have made a profession of faith in Christ, but you know that it's not true in your heart. Paul says, be ready. You don't know when you'll be called to account. Finally, one of the responses of all of this is that we should get to work. 
Back in the 1 Corinthians 15 passage, as Paul was ending that passage, he said these words in 15 verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, therefore, as a result of what I've just told you about the resurrection and the the victory we have over sin and death. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This wonderful doctrine that Paul gives the Corinthians and the Thessalonians and us about what happens when we die is meant to motivate us to abound in the work of the Lord in this life. Not just thinking about ministry as being the ministry of the church, but also God's work that he gives us to do in his kingdom. Doing whatever God calls us to do in this life and to do it in the Lord, Paul says. And as we do the work that He gives us to do, we can know that it's not in vain. Because God is going to use it for His glory and the building up of His church and His kingdom. So our work has value because Jesus has conquered death and has risen from the grave. And because He's coming again. And so that gives us meaning and significance and value in our work Monday through Saturday. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we, even as we've already talked about in our service, we need to be people who are filled with hope on a regular basis. So we thank you for the Apostle Paul and we thank you for giving him an understanding into what happens when we die. And although, Father, there are so many questions that we have that you and your providence have determined not to give us specific answers about in the scriptures, we pray that you would fill us with hope and satisfy us with what you have given us, the knowledge of what happens when we die and the hope that we have because of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with that hope so that we go out this week, that we ourselves would be encouraged That we would look for those opportunities to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling. That you would help us to have these things in our mind all the time that we might be ready for your return or our time to come before you. And indeed, Father, that you would fill us with a sense of the value of the work that you give us because of all of these things that Paul has said. Would you do this for your glory? for the building up of your church and kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of Matthew gives us instructions about the Lord's Supper. Matthew tells us that as Jesus and the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he said this, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you. In my Father's kingdom. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper as we conclude our service, it is meant to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. His body, His blood, His sacrificial death. It is to point us to the solution to our sin. That in Christ our sins are forgiven and cast as far as the east is from the west. And that we have the righteousness of Jesus credited to our accounts because of his faithful obedience, loving obedience to his father. 
But there's another aspect of this table. Every Sunday, we not only are to be thinking about what Christ came and did, we also are to be thinking about the fact that he rose again from the grave. That at this very moment, he is seated at the Father's right hand as our advocate. And that one day, he is coming back again. And that day is a day of joy and gladness for us as his people. And as real as these elements are, you can touch them, you can taste them, you can smell them, you can see them. That's how real the promises of God are for us in Christ Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have publicly professed your faith in Christ at Trinity or another church that believes God's word is true and authoritative, then we would encourage you as the elements come out to you to eat and to drink and to remember, remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also remember his resurrection from the grave and allow that truth to fill you with hope so that you go out this week living as people with that joy and gladness, celebrating in this wonderful salvation that is ours. So let's pause and let's ask the Lord to bless this table that he might use it to strengthen our faith. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness and your love and your mercy. We see all of those things demonstrated here at the Lord's Supper. We do pray that as we come to this table once again, help us to meditate on our sin that caused the Lord Jesus to go to the cross. Help us to reflect on his death on our behalf. But I pray, Father, that you would also fill us with an understanding of his resurrection from the grave and what that means for us in our resurrection to come. And I pray that as we meditate on those things through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would feed us, nourish us, strengthen us, so that we would go out to be people of great hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.